We are now halfway in our series on the book of Daniel entitled God's Vessel, and our text for today is in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, and the title of our message is The Two Visions. From chapter 7 until the end of Daniel, you'll notice that we have a different kind of literary genre. The first half of Daniel, chapters 1 to 6, is mostly history with a bit of prophecy, and this section is mostly in the narrative form. But the second half, chapter 7 to 12, is mostly prophecy with a bit of history. And this section is considered apocalyptic literature. Now, the word apocalypse is the Greek word meaning revelation or unveiling. So, apocalyptic literature are writings that reveal truth using pictures, visual symbols, and powerful images. So, from the historical narratives, Daniel now moves towards the apocalyptic part. Instead of stories, we now have dreams and visions. And that is why many times you'll read in these chapters the words like, I saw, behold, and I look. And as we learned last time, chapters 2 to 7 of Daniel are written in Aramaic. And this section has a unique chiastic structure wherein the six chapters correspond to one another. In chapter 2, it tells us about the king's dream of the statue made of four metals, which is parallel to chapter 7, which talks about the dream of the four beasts. Now, what's the difference between these two dreams? You see, Nebuchadnezzar's vision is from man's perspective while the vision of Daniel is from God's perspective. Interestingly, man sees these four kingdoms as being very impressive and valuable. It's made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. But when God looks at this kingdom, what he sees are ugly beasts and evil kingdoms rule. Now, the vision in chapter 8 expands and adds details to Daniel's vision in chapter 7. And here is the outline of our study today. First, the background and setting, then the vision's content, and then its interpretation. Our passage is long, so we won't read all through the verses, but I encourage you to read Daniel 7 and 8 on your own after listening to this message. Now, here is the lesson for us today. God wins in the end. God wins in the end. Let's dive into our text. First, the background and setting. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. In chapter 8, verse 1, In the third year, the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. In the past, Daniel interpreted the visions of other kings. Now, Daniel will have his own visions. And note that the chapters uh, 7 and 8 happened before chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5 was the story of Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. And this event happened during the last year of Belshazzar in 539 BC. In chapter 6, Belshazzar is already dead and Persia is now the ruling empire. Now the events in chapter 7 and 8 are like flashbacks. In chapter 7, Daniel received his first vision during the first year of Belshazzar in Babylon, and the date was about 553 BC. As for chapter 8, Daniel received his second vision during the third year of Belshazzar, about 551 BC. Now, please note this important fact. Daniel's vision came years before the Babylonian Empire was conquered. When Daniel received his first two visions, his visions were not yet history. All of them were still prophecy because none of them has happened yet. So let's go back to our text. Chapter 8, verse 2. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. 
And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulay Canal. In Daniel's second vision, he tells us that he saw himself at the citadel or fortress of Susa besides the Ulay Canal. At the time of Daniel's vision, Susa was not yet that prominent. It was already an ancient city, but it's not a significant place under the Babylonians. But under the Persian Empire, Susa became a royal city and the administrative capital of it, and it became the winter residence of the Persian kings. The city of Susa sounds familiar because it's one of the cities mentioned in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Queen Esther lived there and Nehemiah worked in that city. And today, it's located in present-day Iran. Now, here is something amazing. Only the sovereign God who controls the future could have known that the city of Susa would become a center of power in the future. Now, let's see the content of the vision. Chapter 7 records Daniel's first vision, which is a three-part vision. And the first part of that vision is the vision of the four beasts. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea, or the Mediterranean Sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. In his dream, Daniel saw four great beasts from the sea. Why from the sea? In the ancient world, the sea symbolizes evil and chaos. It's from the sea where you would face storms and uncertainty. It's also from the sea where foreign nations would come and attack. So these four beasts came up out of this great sea of chaos. And as mentioned, chapter 2 is parallel with chapter 7. And here is a table of comparison. These are the beasts that Daniel saw and which corresponds to the images of the statue in chapter 2. So let's take a closer look. First, first beast is like a lion with eagle's wings. Like the head of gold, this beast represents Babylon. And here's more interesting. Archaeologists discovered statues of winged lions in Babylon. And the lion is the king of the beasts, while the eagle is the king of the birds. Daniel saw that the wings of this beast were plucked off. And most scholars agree that this scene refers to when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride. And God gave him the mind of a beast. Then this beast became a human being, and he was given a human mind. This scene points to when God restored Nebuchadnezzar and gave back his human mind. Next is the bear-like beast. The bear that ravaged the lion is Medo-Persia, with Cyrus as its king. This beast parallel the chest and arms made of silver in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the bear is raised on one side, which perfectly describes the unequal relationship between the Medes and the Persians. The Persians were much more powerful, so the Persians eventually dominated the Medes. And the three ribs in its mouth tells us that this beast had a great appetite and intense hunger for destruction. And because of its great strength, this bear already devoured kingdoms. And the third beast is a leopard-like with four wings and four heads. The third beast looks like a leopard, and this leopard corresponds to the bronze belly and thighs in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Leopards are known for their speed and agility, and they're known for their sudden and unexpected attacks. And combined with its four wings, this beast represents swiftness of its conquest. Now, Daniel chapter 8 also has a parallel image of this kingdom. Daniel sees these two powerful beasts in his second vision, a ram and a goat. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. 
Notice what the verse says, the goat attacks without touching the ground. This implies that this goat has super speed, similar to the swiftness of the winged leopard. As for the ram and the goat, here's the interpretation. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And a large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. History confirms this for us. After the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire rose and the large horn led it. And Bible scholars agree that this large horn is Alexander the Great, the first mighty king of the Greek Empire. And true to his prophecy, Alexander the Great conquered the known world then with amazing speed. Now Daniel saw this goat came up to fight against the ram. And what happened? It shattered the two horns of the ram. That's exactly what happened historically. Alexander the Great broke both parts of the Medo-Persian Empire, and the ram suffered a crushing defeat from this goat. Verse 8. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. History tells us that Alexander the Great accomplished great things. He succeeded his father as king at age 20 and became a general at age 21. And by age 25, he had conquered the known world at the time, and that is why he was titled the Great. Alexander was not a godly man. He was a ruthless pagan king. But by the world's standards, Alexander was a great man and he was proud of it. In fact, he arrogantly allowed himself to be called a god. But as predicted, this large horn was broken. And true enough, Alexander the Great died in his early 30s at the height of his power. We also know from history that his four generals divided his empire among themselves after Alexander's death. And these four heads, or the four generals, correspond to the four heads of the leopards and the four horns that grew after the big horn of the goat, which represents the division of the Greek empire into four parts. General Cassander, or Antipater, ruled over Macedonia and Greece. General Lysimachus over Asia Minor, Seleucus ruled over Babylonia and Syria, and Ptolemy ruled over Egypt and Palestine. At this point, let's pause for a moment. Some people don't believe that Daniel's vision are prophecies. Why? Because according to them, it was an obvious fact that the Medes and Persians would eventually take over Babylon since it's the rising superpower at that time. But here's I want you to note. Daniel's visions and prophecies in chapters 7 and 8 about the rise of Persia and the defeat of Babylon were at least one decade before the actual event happened. And these two visions were just confirmations of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. God gave Daniel the prophecies in chapter 2 at least 60 years before Persia conquered Babylon. And the same goes with Daniel's vision about the rise of Greece and Rome. So here's the point. Remember the lessons that we've learned in our study of Daniel. God is in charge of world history and He is in control of our personal stories. The Most High God is the all-knowing God. He can tell the future because for Him, the future is as certain as the past. And here's another thing. Not only is God all-knowing, the Lord of Heaven is also the all-powerful God. He sets up kings and kingdoms and He removes rulers and empires according to His plans and purposes. So, are you afraid of the future? Do not fear. The future may be uncertain from our limited perspective, but we can be sure of the one who knows our tomorrow. Let me repeat that. Do not fear. The future may be uncertain from our limited perspective, but we can be sure of the one who knows our tomorrow. And the Lord of heaven 
is all-knowing and all-powerful. The Most High God controls the destiny of His own people and He commands even the destinies of His enemies. And this truth should be our encouragement today. Despite our present difficulties and the uncertainty of the future, God wins in the end. God wins in the end. Next, the fourth beast. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another, a little one, came up among them, and the three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Daniel couldn't fully describe what this beast was like. All he could say that this beast was dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. Its iron teeth are the perfect killing machine. These iron teeth and the ten horns reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue with iron legs and ten toes. And this fourth kingdom represents the Roman Empire. History tells us that Rome was the largest, strongest, and the longest of all empires, and Rome is known for its brutal and iron rule. Since horns symbolize power, this beast with ten horns is utterly powerful. And one important thing is that this empire will have one influential leader symbolized by the little horn that will come from it. The little horn or leader is powerful, ambitious, and arrogant. His a small horn with a big mouth and a big plans to take over the world. Now, let's continue. From verses 9 to 12, Daniel sees the second part of his vision. After the four beasts, Daniel saw the Ancient of Days. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Notice the sudden transition from the four beasts to the second part of Daniel's vision. The vision of the four beasts ends with a little horn speaking great things. This horn spoke about his own greatness and boasting about his own power. But then the focus suddenly shifts to show where the real power and true greatness in the universe lies. And who is this truly great one? The Ancient of Days. Now, who is this figure? The Ancient of Days is the Most High God, and we can refer to him as God the Father. The term ancient does not mean old or feeble. Instead, ancient highlights God's eternality and longevity and divine wisdom. He has existed before all the kingdoms and nations and peoples of the earth, and by His wisdom, He will judge everyone according to His will. Now, let's read on. The Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture or clothing was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. These words refer to God's absolute purity in contrast to the wild beasts. Now, look at how Daniel described his throne. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning a fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Here God is showing us sitting on the throne of judgment. This image shows God's authority. And what is the extent of God's reign? Thousands upon thousands were attending to him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. In modern terms, there's trillions and quadrillions of angels serving the ancient days and worshipping him. God's army is greater than the armies of the four empires combined. And what happens next? The court sat and the books were opened. The words the thrones were set up, the court sat and the books were opened are judgment scenes. And in this verse, we see God's judgment in action. 
Verse 11, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Daniel saw how God destroyed the fourth beast by fire. Now after the vision of the Ancient of Days, Daniel saw a vision of the Son of Man. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. For what reason? That all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Note the contrast between the Son of Man and the beasts. The beast came up out of the great sea of evil and chaos, but this Son of Man came down from the clouds of heaven. This title, Son of Man, implies that he is a man with a capital M. This Son of Man shows us what humanity is supposed to be. Now, this Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven, and his image signifies that this figure is a divine being. So while the fierce and ugly beasts represent the earthly kingdoms, God's kingdom is represented by this divine human figure. And here's another thing. The Son of Man will rule forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. In contrast to the human empires which are destroyed after one another, His kingdom cannot be conquered. And this picture parallels the eternal kingdom of God that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Now, who is the Son of Man? He is the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus used this title for himself more than any other title, a total of 80 times in the four Gospels. Now, you might think that when we say that Jesus is the Son of Man, that Jesus is just claiming he's only human like us. But that's not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus' use of this title is a strong pointer to his claim as being God. Look at this incident in the Gospels. Immediately after Jesus was arrested, they brought him to the high priest for questioning. Mark 14, 61-64 Then Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God? Jesus said, I am. Then Jesus quotes straight from Daniel chapter 7. And you will see the Son of Man seated in a place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And how did the high priest respond? Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. The high priest and the high court of Sanhedrin clearly understood that Jesus claims to be God. So they accused Jesus of blasphemy and condemned him to death. Again, here's the point. Jesus is the Son of Man to whom God has given eternal dominion, glory, and kingdom. And Christ is the King who will return to judge all the peoples and nations. But here is the question for us. Is Christ your King? Do you pledge loyalty to Him? Are you ready to serve Him? And are you ready for His return? May God help us. Now let's go back to our text. As Daniel tried to make sense of what he saw, he struggled to understand his own vision. So he asked one of the angelic beings to interpret the vision for him. And that leads us to the next part, the vision's interpretation. First, what do the four beasts represent? Here's the reply of the angel. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. And this is something that we already know, but here's an additional information that the angel gave us. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. 
for all ages to come. Now you may ask, didn't the vision say that the Son of Man is the one who received the everlasting kingdom? That's also true. But you see, the saints here are God's people who also belong to the Son of Man. As we've learned in the book of Ephesians, as God's people, we have been made co-heirs with Christ and we will reign with Him in His eternal kingdom. And what's fascinating is that God has already revealed this truth as early as the Old Testament. Now Daniel asked the angel something that really disturbed him. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up. Then Daniel added these details regarding his vision. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The angel graciously granted Daniel his request, and so he explained the fourth beast, which will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So this little horn refers to a future and final leader of the last kingdom on earth. And what else? His wickedness will be greater than any leader who came before him. Now, who is this little horn? The New Testament writings identify this person using various names. He is the king who sets up the abomination of desolation, the man of lawlessness, the rider on a white horse, the first beast from the sea, and the most familiar title is the Antichrist. The term Antichrist simply means against Christ. As the Apostle John records in his letters, an Antichrist is any person who denies the Father and the Son. He does not acknowledge Jesus and one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. Remember this truth. There have been many Antichrists, as John tells us. But there is also a coming, the Antichrist, and he will arrive in the future end times. And what will this little horn do? Verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. This Antichrist will commit blasphemy and he will persecute God's people. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Meaning, he will make himself God. He will change the law of the land and God's law and even demand people to worship him. And they, referring to the saints, will be given into his hands for a time, times, and a half time. This Antichrist is the end times false messiah and he will seek and achieve world domination so that he can destroy the people of Israel and the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the exact meaning of time, times, and a half time is debated. Many scholars believe that a time means one year, times plural means two years, and a half time means half a year. Thus, it would refer to a three and a half years. Now, whether this is literal or figurative, the point is clear. God's people will be placed under the Antichrist's power for a limited period. Their suffering will be short-lived, but intense. Evil would seem to triumph against God's people. But again, that's not the end of the story. Scripture tells us that God wins in the end. God wins in the end, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Did you hear that? This is great news. God wins in the end. And because of that, we, the people of God, also win 
in the end. Now let's backtrack a bit. If you look at chapter 8, it also mentions something about a little horn. Now here's the question, is this little horn the same as the small horn in chapter 7? Let's take a closer look. Out of one of them, referring to the four horns of the goat, came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. That's Israel. So in this vision of the goat, four horns took the place of the great horn after it was broken up. And out of these four horns, there grew a small horn. And here is the angel's explanation of its meaning. The angel Gabriel said, The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms, which will arise from this nation, although not with its power. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Daniel's second vision tells us that from the goat will come four kings, which will then be followed by another king, the small horn. And during this time of the small horn, God's people will experience intense persecution. And chapter 8 verse 14 tells us that the desecration of God's holy temple would last for about 2,300 evenings and mornings. And the phrase evenings and mornings mean the evening and the morning sacrifices. And it referred to the time of the desecration of the temple up to its restoration. Now, if we follow the logical progression, we can conclude that this small horn is still part of the Greek Empire, meaning this king will appear before the first coming of Christ, which took place at the time of the Roman Empire. In other words, the little horn in chapter 7 and the small horn in chapter 8 does not refer to the same person. Why? Because the small horn in the 8th chapter comes from the Greek Empire, while the little horn of the 7th chapter would arise from the Roman Empire that is yet to come. Now remember, Daniel was still in exile when he received this vision, and the Jews were still in exile. But in this vision, Daniel saw that the Jews would be back in the land of Israel, and this coming Greek ruler will fight against God himself and his people. Now who is this small horn in history? Most Bible scholars agree that this small horn that grew out of one of the four horns was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We know much about him from the intertestamental writings like the Maccabees. Antiochus IV was not the first in line to succeed his older brother, but he was a politically manipulative man and a master of intrigue. So he managed to push his rival out of the way to gain the throne. And true to Daniel's prophecy, Antiochus called himself Epiphanes Antiochus. Epiphanes means God appearing, so he considered himself to be God appearing in the flesh. And the terror that he brought upon Jerusalem was unprecedented in its evil and intensity. And history tells us that he slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews. Circumcision and Sabbath worship was forbidden under the penalty of death. He stopped all the Jewish festivals and the daily sacrifices at the temple. He further defiled God's temple by entering the Holy of Holies, setting up the statue of the Greek god Zeus, and sacrificing a pig on the altar which the Jews consider unclean. Later on, Antiochus also had a statue of himself built so that offerings could be made to his image. All these things happened during the intertestamental period. That's the time between the end of the Old Testament and when Jesus was born. And history tells us that Judas Maccabeus and his followers led a successful revolt against Antiochus, and so that they were able to restore proper temple worship in 165 BC. And the present-day Jews now commemorate this event as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights, which celebrates the rededication of the Second Temple of Jerusalem. Now, what's the relationship between the little horn in chapter 7 and the small horn in chapter 8? 
Bible commentators say that the small horn in chapter 8 is a precursor to the little horn in chapter 7, which will appear at the end of the age. Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows the future and the final Antichrist, which will come at the end of human history. And like Antiochus Epiphanes, this final Antichrist will oppose God and persecute his people. Now, let's see how chapter 8 ends. Verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision that there was none to explain it. Daniel was troubled by the vision, and yet, what did he do? After recovering from his sickness, he got up again and returned to work. And friends, here is a key lesson that we can learn from Daniel. In life, there will be things that will trouble us and events that will discourage us. Perhaps you are now having troubles and worries. Maybe you're asking, what will happen to our country? What will happen to our children? What will happen to the church? And so on and so forth. Now, what should you do? Like Daniel, here is what we are to do. Do what God has called you to do at this moment. Be God's faithful vessel. Get up and faithfully do the work that God has called you to do. Now, let's go to the application. The first, God wins in the end. Therefore, trust and rest in Him. One mistake in interpreting apocalyptic writings and prophecies is to miss the whole forest for the trees. One tendency is to overinterpret every single detail, but in doing so, you don't see the bigger picture and miss the main point. So at this moment, let's step back from the trees and look at the forest. Remember what we've learned last time? God is the hero of the story, and this theme is consistent throughout the book of Daniel. Yes, Daniel's vision were fearsome. These four kingdoms in history were mighty and strong. They were intimidating, violent, and destructive. If you lived during those times, you would have thought, there's no way this kingdom would end. But where are they now? They're now but historical trivia questions. Now, perhaps many of you are worried given the geopolitical crisis we are in. You fear that the conflict in Ukraine might erupt in World War III. You worry that the U.S. as the ruling superpower would soon face Russia and perhaps China in a global war. And the result would be a financial crisis, chaos, suffering, destruction, and death. And those are valid concerns. But fear not, because God wins in the end. And if we are on God's side, here is the hope that we have. That the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High God. His kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey Him. Did you hear that? Brothers and sisters, this is God's promise. This world may be destroyed, but if we are in Christ, we are co-heirs with Him, and in God's time, we will receive God's kingdom as our eternal inheritance. And therefore, let us trust God and rest in Him. Next, God wins in the end. Thus, endure and remain faithful. Endure and remain faithful. We live in a world that is broken and corrupted by sin, and part of that reality is that we live in frustration and groaning. Every ruler, every government who will be in power will fail and disappoint us in one way or another. So don't expect a ruler or government to do what only God can do. Now Daniel's vision warns us that things will get worse, especially for God's people. And as saints of God, we can expect hard days ahead as human history comes to a close. And this reality is what our Lord Jesus himself told his disciples. John 16.33 Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said that we will have trouble. But this reality should not frighten us because our Lord Jesus Christ 
gave us this promise. I have overcome the world. I am with you. And Christ gave us this promise in Revelation 3.21. To the one who is victorious and overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So friends, are you about to give up your faith because you've lost hope in God? Don't give up, but endure. Are you tempted to deny Christ and just live for yourself and pursue worldliness? Don't give in. Stand firm and remain faithful. Don't give up, but endure. Don't give in, but stand firm and remain faithful. Remember this warning and encouragement from our Lord Jesus Christ. Let the one who is doing wrong continue to do wrong. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. Let the one who is righteous to continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. And that brings us to our last point. God wins in the end, so prepare and get ready for Christ's return. Prepare and get ready for Christ's return. Friends, don't just prepare for tomorrow. Prepare for eternity. If you are a follower of Jesus and have committed your life to Him, then keep the main thing. Focus on Christ. Don't live in fear and be distracted by chasing who the Antichrist would be. Instead, live in faith by focusing and knowing who Christ is. As one professor and theologian said, No passage of scripture directs Christians to prepare for the Antichrist, but numerous passages instruct them to await Christ's return. It's a real problem if your end times expectations are Antichrist-centered, centered in fear, rather than Christ-centered, which is centered in hope. So may God help us. Friends, let me emphasize that again. Seek to know more about who Jesus is through the pages of scriptures. Know Christ through God's word so that you can love him more. Follow Christ's example as you love others and obey Christ's command to make disciples. May God help us. Now, if you are, have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, then the Bible says you are God's enemies and you are destined for his wrath. Why? Because you and I are sinners. Since the time of Adam, humanity has fallen into sin and we have rebelled against God and God will destroy all evil and judge all sinners. That is the bad news for all of us. But here is the good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came to serve by dying on the cross on our behalf. And through his death, Jesus has fully paid the penalty of our sins. And through Christ, God is offering you his terms of peace. If you surrender your life to Christ, if you submit to his will, God will no longer consider you his enemies, but he will call you his children. So what is your choice? Will you side with the earthly kingdoms of the beast, or will you pledge allegiance and side with God's heavenly kingdom? Will you bow down to the world, or will you bow down to Jesus and acknowledge him as your king and lord? May God help us. Friends, don't delay your decision. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. Behold, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Again, as you choose this day whom you will serve, remember that God wins in the end. God wins in the end. Let us pray. Praise be to you, O Lord. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are yours and yours alone. You change times and seasons. You remove kings and raises up kings. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And you reveal deep and hidden things. And you know what lies in darkness and light dwells in you. We praise you, O God, for you are worthy of all glory, 
honor and praise. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of life and we thank you for the gift of salvation that you have given us through Christ and deserving as we are. Remind us always of the grace that we have received from you, the underserving gift that you have given us. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your faithfulness and for who you are. Thank you so much. Father, we thank you also for the message that we have learned from Daniel. Thank you for reminding us that in the end, you will win. Thank you, God, that you win in the end and that we can have hope and faith and trust in the assurance that no matter what happens to us, we can be assured that it is your purpose, your perfect will will prevail. And Father, as we wait upon you, on your, upon the coming of our Lord Jesus, enable us, O God, to live by faith, to walk by faith and not by sight and not live in fear. Help us to have a perspective that is focused on Christ. Enable us to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received. For many of us who are wearied and tired, empower us by your Spirit. Grant us healing for those of us who are sick. Help us, O Lord, to have the perspective and the wisdom to solve our difficulties, our problems. Lead us to the right people, the solutions, and the steps that you that would help us to move forward. Enable us, O God, to live with peace and to overcome the challenges that is set before us. Lord, in everything, may we glorify you and honor you. Help us, Lord, to see things through your perspective, whatever happens in this world. We help us, Lord God, not to worry. We pray for our brothers and sisters, especially those in, in Russia and Ukraine, the Christians and the churches, Lord God, there we pray that you help them, Lord God, especially the pastors, their shepherds, help them, Lord, to, to know what to do as they take care of the people, especially in the war-torn areas in, in Ukraine. Provide for their needs physically, spiritually, emotionally. Grant them your peace, your presence, and help them to know you during these difficult times. Grant healing to our land as we face this COVID pandemic. Help us to move forward. Grant wisdom to our leaders and enable us to work together as one country. And we pray, O oh Lord, for the upcoming elections. Would you please raise up godly and righteous leaders who would lead us, O oh God, and place, Lord God, on, on these positions, those people who would be faithful to you, who would honor you, who would uh, work... Um, to, to, to serve your people and to serve you more than anything else. Thank you so much. Grant us your presence. God, grant us your peace as we face another week ahead of us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Grant us your peace and your presence. Enable us to live in the light of the perspective that you will win in the end, to live in faith, to live in hope, and enable us, Lord, to share that hope that we have in you. Empower us to share it to others. Thank you so much. All glory, power, dominion, authority be yours and yours alone. All these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you once more for joining us. I hope to see you next time. God bless us all. See you.